Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. My name is Brian Lauritsen from Classical KUSC. It's my joy to be with you here this evening. Yay. Uh, to my immediate left is Ellen Reed, Pulitzer Prize winning. I'm smiling. I'm smiling under my mask. Pulitzer Prize winning composer of the Opera Prism, uh, the co-founder with Missy Mazzoli of the Luna Composition Lab, a mentorship program for uh, young female, non-binary, and gender non-conforming composers. Uh, she's the creative advisor and composer in residence for the LA Chamber Orchestra, and the creator of Soundwalk, which you may have enjoyed at Griffith Park here in Los Angeles, or any of a number of cities across this great country. Her um, Co-curator Pekka Cusisto um, could not be with us here for this preview this evening. He's very busy tonight. Um, but Nico Muley, the composer of the concerto that you'll hear later, Hello. is here. Um, Nico is a, a composer in like all genres of every kinds of every kind of create, creation of sound. Uh, the multiple commissions from the Metropolitan Opera, the LA Phil, the Philadelphia Orchestra choral music, the Talis Scholars, um, the, the choirs in Cambridge, England, uh, St. John's, and uh, you were just there, actually, with a... The day before yesterday, yeah. The day before yesterday. How was the flight, by the way, here? You, it, was pretty, it was pretty savage, <laughs> but it was still masked on, like, apparently my flight home tomorrow, so... We'll, so we've heard, yeah. So we'll, see, we'll see what happens. Um, and you had just had a piece premiered there this past weekend. Correct, uh, yeah. I had a 75-minute solo harp piece based on the Stations of the Cross designed for Holy Saturday. So, you know, <laughs> give it up for Holy Week, I guess. <laughs> give it up for Holy Week. I love it. So, Ellen, um, you and Pekka have put together this program this evening. Um, where, where did you begin? How did you decide to, to start? Um, Pekka and I have really wanted to work together for a long time now, and we're thrilled to have a first collaboration. Um, and then we started creating the program with pieces that we love and composers whose music we love. And we wound up with this program that's all of these really delectable bites of music. And I couldn't be more thrilled. Also, um, I wrote a piece for Pekka, which is a world premiere, and it's the first piece on the program called Desiderium. Well, let's dive right into that piece. So sure. um, define that word for us, please, and tell us sure. what it means to you and what it means to the music that you've written. So I was looking for a word. I've heard that there's a word in Portuguese, saudades, that means longing. It's like the special flavor of longing. And it's longing for something that maybe you never had or something that you had that you can't have anymore. And I was looking for an English equivalent for this word, and I came across the word desiderium. And it sounded, um, it sounded right, and so I started following it to see what it meant. And it means uh, longing for something that you can no longer have. And that's such a specific quality of longing and of desire that it just really kind of gave birth to this work. That seems like the perfect emotional kernel to begin with, to, to, to dive into writing a piece, you know, this, this sense of yearning, this sense of longing. Totally. Where does the music go? So, you know, it's, it goes from places of rage. It starts in a place of rage, and then it kind of, like, when you're having those experiences of rage, then you go between the rage and something incredibly peaceful. So it kind of oscillates between this emotional 
torment to the most peaceful, beautiful memory, and then through some spirals to a place of very um, embodied joy, the thought that, you know, there, there's this journey, right, and you, you want this thing you can't have, and then by the end, you're just glad that you had it at some point. And you mentioned this is your first collaboration with Pekka, our violinist and your co-curator this yeah. evening. What has that collaboration been like for you, and what inspires you about what he does with the violin? Oh, my God. I mean, all I'm going to say is if you've never seen Pekka, the first second you hear him play the violin, you'll, I don't need to say anything. You'll get it. Um, Pekka invited me a few years ago, maybe in 2019, to watch him play Vivaldi's Four Seasons with the New York Phil. And honestly, I could have been less interested to ever go watch the Four Seasons. Um, and then, as soon as Pekka laid his bow on the string, I, it was my favorite piece of music I've ever heard in my life. Um, and that's the kind of performer Pekka is. And tonight on the program, it's going to be reflected in all of these different ways that just showcase his incredible, I mean, I can, there aren't even words. It's just like music. Nico, you've worked with Pekka quite a bit. Um, this is our, what, our, our uh, 13th year of, of oh, wow. working together. What is it about his artistry that, that inspires you as a composer? Well, it's interesting. You, you'll see tonight, he's, um, he's playing the violin a little bit, but he's also conducting. Um, he just took an appointment as the principal guest conductor of the Helsinki Philharmonic, and he's a really great thinker about music. And there's a lot of thought, 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 and then it's reflected in this insane physicality. So as, as Ellen said, it's like the, the minute the, the hair touches the, touches the gut or whatever, it, you, some, something magical happens. But what I like about him enormously is that he sets up these um, these situations for himself where you don't actually know what's going to happen. And that's, that happens both through improvisation, which of which there will be a few this evening, um, but also through a sense of, uh, sometimes violinists in terms of their technique goes from a sort of a, a two to a six on a scale of one to ten. Pegas goes from like a zero to a twelve in terms of, in terms of how extreme he's willing to take a gesture. So with, you know, with very, very good violinists, you say, oh, could you play it sort of close to the fingerboard? And they go close to the fingerboard. And Pekka will go past the fingerboard, like across the ocean, back home to Finland, farther east. <laughs> and, and there's a willingness to kind of do that that is extraordinary, but also infectious. And so you'll see that, that the people around him kind of, you know, t take cues from that. And he's also an hysterical person and really fun to be around, which I know you know, we're all here for the music, but actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if people are an hysterical person and fun to be around, it doesn't hurt. That's true. So that sense of possibility within what he does and beyond what he does um, really feels like something that could be fertile ground as you're sitting down in front of a blank screen or a blank sheet of, of staff paper. Like, Here's this violinist who can kind of do, as, as Nico says, anything from 0 to 12 on a scale of 1 to 10. How much of what he has done already do you take into account? How much do you say, like, oh, but could you do this or could you try this? Because I remember the Bjarnarsson violin concerto that he premiered at the Hollywood Bowl. He's whistling, he's singing while he's playing, all sorts of, of crazy techniques. Do you write extra stuff for him because it's him? For me, I, I left space 
And there are parts of the score where there is box notation and then descriptions. And within the description, it's hyperbole, as fast as humanly possible. You know, and, and Pekka will play it in a way that the first time I watched him play it, I started laughing out loud, because it's so amazing. And um, yeah, I think that my, my goal with Desiderium was to leave space where Pekka can fill it himself, rather than prescribe um, like whistling or that kind of thing, because also the hope with any new work is that it gets performed again. So I wanted to find the space where Pekka can make it wholly his own, but also the work can have a life. We don't need to hire a whistler, you know? Yeah, I, I should also say, with the, the, the way that we're describing him now, it sounds like he's doing, he's always doing crazy things. He also, you, you, he will play Bach in the most traditional and beautiful way, and is, a, is you know, again, so, he's, he's not just wilding out on the violin. He, he's, a, he's a very deeply serious musician who, yeah. who does a lot of things that are, I mean, the, the piece that I wrote for him is fully notated, like there's nothing left to chance. And when she said, I, I, assume you all know what this is, but I'll say anyway, when she says box notation, what that means is that you draw a box and you put some information inside. So that could be notes, or that could be rhythms, or that could be notes and rhythms, and then some instructions. So it could be a set of pitches and you say, you know, slowly move between these pitches at will or move faster and faster. That's, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, there's some things in my piece that have rhythmic gestures like that within a chord so that he can play arpeggios as he wants to within a chord. Or I give a gesture that's rhythm and pitches and then I say lower and lower each time and he kind of can distort it in a way that's purely his own. And that's a good point too. Like you want to write music that more than one person on planet Earth can play, right? Yeah, you do. But also sometimes one person plays it really special. So, and that's what we're going to see tonight. Very excited for that. So that's uh, Desiderium, the first piece on the program this evening. Then we have Fear Release. And this is a work for percussion. A lot of melody and a lot of resonance in this piece. Yeah, this is a piece that I wrote for the LA Percussion Quartet. And it's really great to have it back in LA. And what we've done is we've spatialized the musicians in the hall so that you'll see there's a um, percussionist way up high to your right, way up high to your left, and two on the stage that are really spread apart. And it creates a really awesome effect of these resonances and sonorities echoing around. Um, I wrote Fear Release for a, um, for a record label that records spatialized sound so that as you're listening on headphones, you get this sense of space. And so I'm trying to create that sense in the hall. What is it like to write for percussion, especially this piece? It just, it's, to me, listening to it, it's so melodic. Is that a challenge to create something like that for these instruments? I love percussion. I played percussion growing up. Every, I mean, and also every piece is a challenge to write. So what I love about percussion is the colors, the resonance. You can get melody and you can get intense rhythm. The spectrum of percussion, I think, is the best spectrum of any instrument family in the orchestra. Then we have music by a British composer, Hannah Kendall. This is a piece called Verdala. The title comes from the SS Verdala, a ship from the Caribbean in the British West Indian Regiment that sailed from Jamaica to Europe to uh, bring soldiers from Jamaica to fight in World War I. Um, what drew you to this piece by, by Hannah Kendall? 
I think you'll hear as soon as it starts the intensity of the colors and the textures that Kendall gets in her writing. It's just so gripping. Um, and it really fit within the program and the sound world of this program in such a perfect way. And I'm a huge fan of hers. And Pekka has been working with Hannah on some things as well. So it made sense to have her as part of the family in this program. And then from Prism. Yes. Uh, a new arrangement of Lumi's Dream. Uh, this is your, yours and Roxy Perkins's work from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, what have you done to create this arrangement uh, for this evening? What's, what's new with this music? It's a larger arrangement. Prism was written for a 13-piece mixed ensemble. And um, I had done an arrangement of Lumi's Dream that was a much smaller um, size arrangement. And so this one has a, a larger string section, and um, it, it uh, lingers in some of the gestures longer, just to give it a little bit more weight and resonance. Um, Eliza Bagg, who's all over this program, is totally incredible. She's a vocalist. She has such a unique voice. She's an improviser and also a composer, and her rendition of Lumi's Dream is just exquisite. Both of you obviously write for the stage, write operas. How do you access this world of, of gripping drama using the text that is, is given to you. I remember walking out of Prism and just, just, just like vibrating with the effect that, that the music and the text and the staging and everything had. How do you access the psychological drama in the music that you write when you're writing for the stage? Don't look at me. <laughs> Oh, you've written a couple. I know. Please, Mr. Met Opera over there, you can speak. The question is, how do you access psychological drama? Yeah, and, and make it manifest in, in what you're writing. Like, how do, you how do you create that? Like, there's nothing on the page, and then you get words. Well, the words, I mean, the, the great thing about writing, so the scariest thing in the universe is if someone says, write us a 20-minute piece for orchestra, because then, and, and that's it, and see you at the premiere, basically. So that, that's a serious blank page. Whereas in opera, you have, you have a task, and the task is that people are going to the theater, essentially, which is a slightly different thing than going to the concert. And then you're, the second task, and I, I'm speaking about, I'm generalizing, and I know that there are a lot of operas that are not this, so don't like angrily tweet at me or whatever. <laughs> but you, you then work with a librettist who provides words, um, and basically you, you're, you're gifted with the hardest part about composing, which is a structure. And then you, you have this thing, and you have, a, you have a shape, and you have a space, and then you can start to work within that. Within that. And it's collaborative, as I'm sure you know. It's like you, you go back and forth a million times, and yeah. ideally you fight a little bit. Not a lot, a little bit. But that's part of the friction, because yeah. you both have visions about what happens. But also if we're thinking, literally, what do you need to create that psychological space? I think we can think about timbre, which is how the instruments are used. We can think about register and rhythm. Um, we can think about um, the textures and kind of what comes before these dramatic moments to create a different, to set them in what landscape. So for example, Lumi's dream that you're going to hear tonight, the opera right before that is in a dance club with this intense beat going like super fast, really intense, super electronic, and then everything cuts out and you're in the aria that you'll hear tonight. And so the backdrop also changes the way that we hear the drama and the way we perceive what's happening on stage. It's content, yeah, con actually that, you, you said it beautifully. It's, it's and, and next time you go to the opera, 
if you, if you want to think about it through this lens, is you can always think psychologically, what does the orchestra know? And by orchestra, I mean the ensemble, whatever, that, whatever it is that isn't singing. Like what, what, what information does that group of people possess? Um, and when are they transmitting it? So sometimes, for instance, it, it will transmit at the same time as the words, at the same time as the, as the melodic lines for the, for the vocalists. And other times the orchestra will know what's gonna happen at the overture, right? Or at the, the very first moment, or people will be singing about something that seems quite, you know, sort of fine or commonplace or everyone's in love, but the orchestra will know that they're gonna die. <laughs> and this is, a, a, I think, a great, and, and you know, what, you've, what you did in PRISM is, is there's this kind of claustrophobic atmosphere um, that sometimes the orchestra knows, uh, it, it's, like, it's like their secret in a way, and then it permeates and it comes kind of in and out of focus. I think that's a, that's a I hope that's an all right way to describe it. I love it, it. Yes. Cool. <laughs> we'll keep that for the future. Exactly. <laughs> Next, it's music by Kamani Bridges, who is a uh, Luna Lab fellow uh, from uh, a couple of years ago. She's 19 years old now, and it, this, I would imagine, is her L.A. Phil debut. Yes, Kimani Bridges is a brilliant young composer. Um, I met her through the Luna Composition Lab program, and she wrote this piece when she was a senior in high school, and it's the textures she creates the imaginativeness which with she composes is so free and so inspiring to me. Um, she's from Louisville, she's at IU getting a degree in music, and this is her LA Phil um, debut, and I'm sure it won't be her last piece. Yeah, that's here. wonderful. And for those who don't know what Luna Lab is, do you want to just share a little bit sure. about the program that you and Missy founded? Yeah, uh, Missy Mazzoli and I founded a mentorship program for young female non-binary and gender non-conforming composers. And we pair uh, five different composers with working female composers, gender non-conforming composers and non-binary composers in the field. And we, um, these composers have lessons throughout the year. And then at the end of the year, we bring all of the five composers to New York for their work to be done professionally. We record their work with International Contemporary Ensemble or other ensembles. And then those works the fellows can use to apply to college and to get further opportunities to try to address the issues in the pipeline with representation. And I'm so excited. I'm leaving LA in two days to go to New York, we haven't been able to have, sorry, I'm getting choked up. Ooh, we haven't been able to have a festival for three years. There are gonna be 30 kids from Luna Lab. So I, saw, I saw the press release, I was like, that's an amazing thing that yeah. you did. It's really 30, beautiful. 30 kids from Luna Lab from all over the US represented there. That's so wonderful. And uh, so this, you founded this with Missy Mazzoli and her music closes the first half of, yeah. of this program. Yep. And this is, an arrangement of some music that she wrote, a larger work that she wrote called Vespers for a New Dark Age, which is a phenomenal piece. What's happening in this arrangement? Missy has arranged this so that Eliza Bag and Pekka Kusisto can perform this live from the stage. And Missy's work is haunting, it's evocative, and I'm just, there is no better piece to close this program. I know this is a big favorite of Pekka's, and he plays this piece all over the world. And Missy arranged it so that it could be with live vocals on the stage here. Yeah, I've seen it done with electronics. Yeah. With Missy and the laptop and, and the, the boxes going in and out. But, but to have it be all live performers will be really, really exciting. Yeah. And so, it's also great because we see Pekka hold space as a performer, we see Pekka as a conductor, we see Eliza as a singer, and then for them to get to close the first half together feels really powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's great. 
So following intermission is a tribute to someone who has been so important to the L.A. Phil family for so many years, who passed away earlier this year. William Kraft was the principal timpanist of the L.A. Phil for more than 20 years. And uh, our current principal timpanist, Joe Pereira, is uh, going to play uh, Encounters One by Kraft to open the second half. Um, just a, a really wonderful tribute to a composer and, and a musician who has been such an important part of the L.A. Phil family for so many years. Um, and I'm, I'm just really, really happy to have this tribute to William Kraft on this program, as I'm sure you are as well. Absolutely. It's such an honor to honor his life on this program. And then, uh, Nico, it's the West Coast premiere. That's right. <laughs> uh, no, I'm skipping ahead, actually. I, I, uh, oh, was there more? There's Meredith Monk. Monk. Oh, of course Meredith Monk. Monk. We forgot about Meredith. And this is an amazing um, Meredith Monk piece, a double fiesta with a, a new arrangement by David Lang, and this is again with Eliza. Yeah, this piece, as soon as you hear it, you're just going to be so happy. And Eliza's singing on this is transcendent. I, I love this piece so much, and it adds such joy and spark to this program. And I'm a huge Meredith Monk fan. I mean, I don't know anybody that isn't, but this work is just joy incarnate. Yeah, totally. And by the way, if you were at Atlas, um, I want to say last year, but the pandemic paused all of time for <laughs> seven last years ago, whenever year. that was, yeah. two or three years ago. But if you were at Atlas, then you know Eliza's artistry as a singer as well. And just, I want to sing Meredith Monk's praises one more time. It's, it's, it's actually a very Pecovian um, rhyme in terms of her ability to take, to take the human voice and go from zero to 12. And, and her, it's, I, I can't think of that many people who are composer performers where it's absolutely joyful and radiant, even when the topic is about death and loss and, and that, that album impermanence. And I, I would say if you can do yourselves a favor and spend a couple of hours just, just going through her catalog, and she's been at it for so long. I mean, I'm thinking about Key is from the late 60s. Yeah. And I mean, she, Meredith is, is um, in, incredible and, and has, has given so much to the world of, of performance. But also, um, so much of her work exists through an oral tradition. And it's something that, that I think people are trying now and I, I, very urgently to um, notate and learn, and learn how to transmit it. And I think that's in the spirit of, it's, not, it's never improvisation, but it's something really worth thinking about tonight, which is this ethos of there's the thing that's written down and then there's this other thing that you tap into and, and the way that those things kind of dance between one another. Totally, I love that, thinking about even the pieces we wrote for Pekka. Like, so much of what happens isn't on the page. And what if somebody wanted to try to capture what Pekka did on Can the you page? imagine? <laughs> I don't know if you could. You know, I remember a professor a long time ago told me that their first day in college, someone sent them away and told them to transcribe Billie Holiday. And he was like, oh, I got this. And then like 17 hours into it, yeah. couldn't transcribe it. And that's how it is with Meredith Monk and Pekka's playing as well. Yeah, yeah. So Nico, you mentioned that Everything in Shrink, your concerto for Pekka, everything is written down. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to we don't have to do that forensic work after the fact with with Shrink. Well, you'll say, I mean, there's you know there's su okay. subtle things that he brings to it in, in his inimitable way. But but this is a play on intervals, each movement right. based and, on different intervals. and psychiatry and psychiatry. <laughs> Tell us more. No, just the word Shrink. I love it. It's like oh, a, I got you. I, I, but I, but I, I, I always try, I think titles are great if they're untranslatable, so they can't go into another language. So it's a turn of phrase that exists only in English. It's, it's a kind of 
sort of mode of limited transposition linguistically. It's like you could only kind of, you could only kind of get it in, in the Anglophone sense. So tell us about Shrink. Sure. And, uh, the, and the intervals, ninths is the yep. first movement, then sixths. So nerdily, I was thinking, okay, I want to write a piece that, that shows off um, basically a low note that goes very, very high next. It sounds really boring, but it's kind of like <laughs> being on a trampoline that suddenly, suddenly you get from down there all the way up there. And then what happens when that gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and tenser and tenser and tenser and more taut and then you're, you're stuck at the, at the kind of floor level just jittering. Um, and so it really, it really is a piece where the first movement just obsesses over this one interval that's, that's sort of a ninth. And then the second movement, which is slower, as the, this is the way of concerti, um, obsesses over sixth and it, it gets these sort of different you get different harmonic possibilities. And then the last movement is all about unisons. And it's just, it's, it's a kind of, it's a kind of um, the, the tension of, of not quite taking off into, into, um, into more elaborate intervals. That was the starting point. I ended up writing something a little bit, a little bit more abstract than that. Um, but, but, but primarily, it, it, it's a piece about um, just having, having fun with notes in a way that I, in my, my harmonic language doesn't always include that. <laughs> And it is a, a huge amount of fun, this concerto. How collaborative was the, the creation of it? it? Interestingly, because I've been writing for Pekka for a really long time, it, there's an element of whenever I write for him, I hear his voice in my ear, you know, talking about, he's like, oh, this would be more interesting if we did that. So I feel like I, I've, I've uh, internalized him as a, as a collaborator, even when he's not around. Um, so number one, there was that. And number two, of course, I was WhatsApping him five times a day, being like, can you play this? Can you play that? What about that? Is it higher? Lower? Um, so as I'm sure you did, too. This, um, and then we, we sat together a couple of times, uh, and I you know, gave him things, and he played it through. And I think that's a great way to work um, with other human beings, is just to be open to, open to sort of, ta you know, you tailor it on their body, in a sense, like a, like a suit or something. Um, and, but, but, you know, that, that having been said, the piece uh, is the... I don't want to say the end point, but it's an important waypoint on a very, very long collaboration. And it, it, it contains the seeds of, you know, the very first thing I wrote for him in, I don't know, it's like 2009 or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Finally, just sort of thinking about where we are in this whole pandemic situation that, uh, that we've been living through, from the beginning when, with all the isolation, a composer isolated isn't too different a lot of times from what pre-pandemic life might ha have been like, but now we're emerging from that. You were just in London, you were just in Boston, you talked about gathering together with the Luna Lab fellows here uh, in just a, a few days. How back are we in terms of, uh, of what, you're, what you're up to these days? You know, it feels totally different and super the same. So. You know, it's, it's this weird mashup of time where there are pieces that I wrote like two years ago that are happening at the same time as something I finished last week. And, and it's just a little bit confusing in that way. Um, but there is nothing like being in a hall with people listening to live music. That can't be replicated in any way. So while so much of what Nico and I do, we can do by ourselves. I think so much of it we can't do or it loses its meaning absolutely. And so you can do it by yourself, and you, but you do it by yourself looking forward to this. 
Specifically, specifically being interviewed by you. That's that's, yeah, right. that's, yes, that's it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, we're but, going but we're going home after this, right? Yeah, yeah, right okay, yeah, exactly. making sure. But but it, it is that thing where you know, it, and this is what I think what COVID taught us in a weird way, which is that yes, you have to be alone to write music. It is a silent act sometimes to write music, but you do it knowing that at the at the end of it, there's this very human human interaction. Um, by which I don't mean like zooming Pekka. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's nice to have actual Pekka. <laughs> like, how back do you think? Do you think we are? What? It's the same. I, I think my answer is is it's so great to be to have that electricity of the silence right before and the silence right after something amazing is about to or has just happened. Like for me, I was most waiting for two things, well, three things: the oboe to tune the orchestra for some weird reason. <laughs> just that sound. I was just that that was going to be comforting to me after so many weeks and months of, of no concerts, but then that hush right before the first note, there's electricity in that moment, the feeling right afterwards before the Bravo guy jumps in and, right. and lets you know that he knows the piece is done. You know what, you know what I, di I didn't miss though, is the coughing. I did yeah. not miss the coughing. Well, and now the coughing really is it's, even more unnerving. Well, yeah, exactly. now, no, but now y'all are too scared to cough. Because you know that if you do, it's like yeah. the ejection. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, that, I think that's, that's it for me. And, and the other thing is, you know, an orchestra of 150 playing triple pianissimo as quietly as possible. There's a thickness to, to that sound of, of so many people together making almost no sound. So that's what I look forward to the most. And then, let's not talk about it. Let's go hear it. Let's do this. Let's Thank do you, a Ryan. show. Let's do this. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Nico Muley and Ellen Reed. <laughs>